Storymakers. Welcome to Storymakers, the podcast that delves into storycraft and the creative life. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And I'm Angie Powers. And we are so thrilled to be joined today by Carolina De Robertis. All right, and then I get to do your bio, so have fun with that. <laughs> Carolina De Robertis is the internationally best-selling author of The Gods of Tango, Perla, and The Invisible Mountain, which was a best book of 2009, according to the San Francisco Chronicle, O, the Oprah magazine, and Booklist. She is the recipient of Italy's Regium Julie Prize, uh, and a 2012 fellowship from the National Endowment from the Arts. Her work has been translated into 17 languages. Her writings and literary translations have appeared in Zoetrope All Story, Granta, and the Virginia Quarterly Review, and elsewhere. She is also the translator of Alejandro Zambra's Bonsai. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. And um, which just was just made into a feature film, and Roberto Ampuero's The Naruto Case. De Robertis is a writer of Uruguayan origins. The British say it differently, by the way. Um, and grew up in England, Switzerland, and California. Prior to completing her first book, she worked in women's rights organizations for 10 years on issues ranging from rape to immigration. She makes her home in Oakland, California, where she's co-producing a documentary about people of African descent in Uruguay. And she's currently working on her fourth novel. So welcome, Carolina. Thank you so much. It's such a delight to be here. Yay. Um, oh, go ahead, Ant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, so we're learning. We start each show with a little check-in about what we are working on this week. And Elizabeth, tell us what you're working on. All right. So I am juggling. I'm try- I, I kind of... Sometimes I try not to juggle, and sometimes I just have to juggle. So right now, I'm... Uh, I just... Um, restructured my old sitting on a shelf book. And, um, and then I, I decided I couldn't really just put it aside. So I, I'm rereading it and re-editing it. And then I'm continuing on with my work in progress, um, writing in the early mornings and kind of, um, nailing the synopsis for that. So it's kind of an exciting moment. <laughs> it does sound exciting. Thank you. How about you, Angie? Well, I'm I'm in another graduate program because you can't spend too much money on non-lucrative degrees. So I am in a film program right now and I have a paper due in January. And so I'm prepping that paper, but it includes an experiment where I will be shooting two different scenes from a script I wrote. So that's what I'm doing. And Carolina? I am working on my fourth novel, and for the first time, I've uh, not shown it to other people along the way. So for a year and a half, I've been very much in my own little secret cave with it. I have 200 pages, much of which is really still developmental, but I just showed the first 70 pages to two of my trusted readers. So this is a really exciting week of having my babies get witnessed for the first time and, and getting some feedback, which is both encouraging and also motivating to kind of uh, flesh it out and, and take it to the next level. So. so have you actually heard back from them? I have, and it's been positive. What a relief. Oh, <laughs> One question when I first give work to uh, to my readers is really, is it a book? <laughs> That's a good question. First time out. And so I got an emphatic, yes, this is a book. Here are some ideas, and this is definitely a book. So that is a relief. That is yes. Huge. And what made you decide this time 
uh, not to show it to people? And how, how has that been different? I think part of it is that when I started it, I wasn't in an active writing group, which I sometimes have been, nor was I in graduate school as I was with earlier books. Um, I was living in Uruguay and, um, you know, my my youngest, my daughter was still very small, year and a half old. So just sort of logistically, you know, the time to write was very contained and focused. And then I think the subject matter that I'm working with um, feels risky in a new way. And I just needed a lot of space to to make mistakes and let it be clumsy and 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 take some risks before um, before letting it venture out. You know, I have been thinking a lot and playing a lot with the the whole. You know, you said letting it be clumsy and 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 taking risks and and you know, I, I we've all. I mean, I've heard of like you know Annie Lamott talks about shitty first drafts and all mm-hmm. of that. But um, recently, someone assigned gave an assignment to to try to write badly, like try to write the worst scene you possibly could. And um, and that was more liberating to me than saying it's okay if it's bad, but actually trying because one, um, it was, I couldn't make it as terrible as I was afraid of make, as I'm always afraid it will be. And two, I knew how to fix it. So what are your strategies for kind of not getting stuck in making, or you know, some people try to make each line beautiful, but what, what are your strategies for letting it be ragged or, or um, what was the word you used? Clumsy. Clumsy. Yeah, that's one word, sort of clumsy. Or like, I mean, I, think I love that idea of just really giving yourself absolute full space to, to, to let it be really crappy and then realize that it can't get as bad as your fears thought it would be. I, you know, I try to really separate out these very different writing minds or almost writing selves. There's the part that generates a novel. Um, and I'm thinking especially novel and long form. You know, that part needs lots of room and kind of, you know, for me, you know, months of, 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 of freedom and exploratory space and the freedom to make um, unsatisfying sentences, uh, you know, or write things down in ways that, that are still very much blurry, out of focus, to discover the landscape of the work. And then there's the other part that is revision, um, that is the editorial mind, and is a completely different tool set. I find that I can't have to- both toolboxes open at the same time, that mm-hmm. the revisionary mind uh, intrudes on the freedom of the generative mind, of the inner sensor, um, whereas the generative, you know, the revisionary mind needs room to kind of say, actually, we need to shape this and we are going to kill some little darlings and so forth. Mm-hmm. So so keeping those keeping those separate and sort of assuring myself, OK, this is a generation week. This is a generating of the novel day. So, you know, back off revision per revision mind. There'll be space for you later. Mm-hmm. Um, and really just trying to have them be separate channels, turning them on and off. That helps me. Yeah. Now you have some incredibly soaring, gorgeous lyrical writing in in this in the Gods of Tango. Thank you. And um, <laughs> and um, you may want to hold that up again. Just hold yeah, it up again for a second, for, so the people who are listening can't see it. They'll have to go look at it. We have it. We will have it linked on our website with the show notes. But um, the last night I taught a passage from this um, in my craft class where we look at small p- sections of, of published beautiful writing and then we we imitate things and um, or, you know. an honor. thank you yeah. oh, it was wonderful thank you and we use the passage where um, Rosa begins to sing in her in, in her in drag <laughs> and and it's just you know this soaring and it has a second person part it's just this beautiful passage and um, so I'm wondering if that stuff comes more generatively or more editorially? <laughs> it, 
it, it absolutely comes generatively. Um, it comes from being able to take those risks and explore and experiment and really like really enter what was that like? What did it feel like to hear those? I mean, Rosa as a as a singer of of tango songs in drag um, is directly modeled after real women who in the 1920s in Argentina resisted this idea that only men could sing tangos because the songs being written were from a very macho part of view of, yeah, I've got all these women and I'm in love and my woman. And so women were told you can't sing tangos in this very macho world. And and some of them, including Asusena Maizani, a major pioneer responded by putting on fedora and men's suits and getting on stage and singing from the male point of view and this has been completely lost in history including our in argentina scholarship in spanish on the tango um, has almost has has virtually completely disappeared this this footnote um in history which should be so much more than a footnote so yeah. wanting to re-enter it and kind of give it voice again um following my curiosity it was definitely generative and the first time it generates, you know, it might be all off. It might be way too many clauses. I might be saying it seven ways when really three would do better, you know, or, or the, the, ad, the adjective that's come out might not being a, be doing as much work as one that I might later select. So um, getting the general shape out happens in the generative phase. And then in revision, I ask myself, you know, do I really need this clause? Is this a comma? Is it a colon? Is it a simple period? <laughs> you know, let's really weigh yeah. this. <laughs> you know, have I earned well, this? You know, I would agree with Elizabeth that, that you, that you have. It's it's a very um, you know as I was reading it, it felt you know there's certain authors where you end up sort of having like less an experience of reading and more an experience of sort of being present in a location. And I think that that's sort of what it felt like. Each place that we were at, I definitely had a sense of the Italian village and, and the joy of the overcrowded Buenos Aires. I mean, it was, um, and I think that your language did a lot to create that, that ambiance, that experience in those locations, so. So you've talked you talked about the inspiration for Rosa and 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 Angie's talking about the setting. How, how much research did you do, and how did that weave into the whole creative process? Uh, I did an enormous amount of research, and and because <laughs> I you know it's enormous because so far I have written historical novels. I always research a book for at least a year before I begin writing. So and I'm just kind also, of you're just note taking, or sorry steeping in the world, if possible, traveling to the place, looking at pictures, gathering stories from people who have personal relationship to those histories when possible, um, do, reading, reading the scholarly books that someone who was writing a dissertation about this time would read, um, sometimes the dissertations themselves, just kind of reading everything I can get my hands on and filling up um, so that I can have the setting in me and therefore ask, you know, what kinds of people would be alive in this setting and what might happen to them and so forth. Um, and then the research continues along the way. With The Gods of Tango, I, I did a, a tremendous amount of scholarly research in English, Spanish, and also Italian. I, I gathered books in Italy about the migration of Italians to South America. I went to a historian's home and he just gave me copies of his books. It was this whole very generous Italian thing. And um, and and I went to bookstores in Argentina and found like out of print little dog-eared books about the tango. But I also did physical research. I think as novelists, we 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 also need this thing that happens through the body uh, of well, what does it feel like? What is the temperature? What is the air like in San Telmo in the summer? And the, the smells of places and what might it have smelled like a hundred years ago, the way people are living, getting it through the body. I took violin lessons. I took 
private tango dance lessons. Um, and do you get to write all that off? <laughs> <laughs> I do, actually. For any aspiring writers out there listening to this, anyone who is working on a first novel and taking any kind of trips, save all those receipts. Yeah, and in some states, even years later, you can retroactively write those things off. Wow. I think that um, was funny starting to read the book because I actually, uh, on my biological father's side, they are Italian and part of the family came here actually to Sonoma County, which is where I live, but part of the family went to Argentina. So um, it was interesting. I was just talking to my mom before the podcast about how she used to read letters from one cousin to another. My grandmother was the cousin here, but the letters were in Spanish. And so my mother would translate them for my grandmother so that she could read them. Oh, that's so. fascinating because in my family, the, the, the part of my family that I modeled some characters in this book on, um, it, it was my great grandparents who were cousins and both migrated from a tiny village in Italy to Argentina. And, um, my great grandfather had a brother who went to Florida. Oh, interesting. And they became this De Robertis lineage in in the United States, in Florida. Yeah. And so it, it, it's a similar kind of a thing. I think a lot of families have that sort of north-south. And here in the U.S., we know some things about the wave of Italian migrants at the turn of the 20th century here, of course. And we hear less about the fact that some of those very same populations also went yeah. south and really transformed, in particular, Argentinian and Uruguayan cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, one of our one of our students who's watching says um, she she just went and did research in Shanghai for her book. And she said, I, I thought it would slash could never end. So how do you bring the research to an end and also um, and, and kind of funnel it into not nonfiction, right? Not documented work, but something then imagine. It's absolutely true that the research can never end because the world is endlessly fascinating and full of information. So I think the the one one thing to keep track of when researching for a novel is that part of the point is to be extremely informed and have all this information, but part of the idea is also to fill the well, the creative well inside. Mm -hmm. And so maybe thinking of this research as an intuitive process and letting all those things and when when the when the inner cooker feels really full you know, just start letting it spill over creatively, write sketches, you know, um, take that information, take one thing that happened in Shanghai or one fascinating book or one one street corner, one market that you went to that looked 50 years old. And what would I might have happened there? And just write your way in, mm. you know, and 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 maybe through those free rights or curiosities or following characters that seem like they're coming alive. Start, um, you know, just start start exploring that labyrinth. Yeah, that is infinite. But from within it, you know, some story will come out that is your very own. Mm -hmm. And and so you also we were noticing um, as Angie was finishing the book, she was she was saying, you know, Dante is that man at the beginning of the book. And I said, what are you talking about? And <laughs> and I went back and indeed, you know, there there he is dying. Right. Is that when you realized it? What? That's when you realized it after having finished it, you you then made the connection. Yeah, and I I sort of I mean I read this, but I I I, I didn't go back in my mind. You missed a page. Uh, reason, but um, it was wonderful to kind of get that. That's great. Now to read it. I love that. 
Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah. So, so then I looked at the structure. It's like, okay, so we start with, with a moment at the end of his life, and then, which is sort of at the end of the book, although we go a little further, but, and then, um, and then part one is, starts with her, um, the passage from the end, then she, then she arrives in Argentina. That's the beginning at the, at the beginning of her journey. Then we go back to kind of what, what launched her on this journey. And then of course, woven through the whole thing, we have this backstory from, from the last six years with her, about her cousin, right. And, or even longer, but I guess it ended six years ago, that backstory, right? So just this, so I'm um, just a beautifully woven, but, but quite complex um, structure. Oh, and just to throw this all, just to talk about structure and you, it's, it's a, it's primarily a fairly close third person, mm-hmm. but, but it has these other passages that go to other characters, some of whom glance off of, of her life and some of whom are more significant. So um, can you talk about kind of finding and, and crafting that the structure in terms of time and point of view? Yeah, so in the past, my first two novels changed a great deal structurally in the process of writing them. Um, sort of the, my first novel took eight years to write, The Invisible Mountain, and those last three years involved a lot of revision and, and sort of restructuring of what was a very large epic world. And, you know, as a first-time novelist, that felt unwieldy, and I learned a lot along the way. Um, and then with this book, it's the first time that I had a sense relatively early on of the general structure, and it and it pretty much held. Um, and I think part of that, and that maybe I just got lucky, you know, I don't, I don't know that that means that it's going to happen in future novels, that it'll, that it'll stay that way. But I think um, form followed content, that I knew that I wanted to trace this one character's journey. And at the same time, I knew that this book had a larger scope that was necessary to it. I wanted it to be a portrait of the, 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 vast and, and, and diverse cultural origins of the tango and of the waves of migrants that transformed Rio Platense culture, meaning Argentinian and Uruguayan culture at the time. So yes, Southern Italians were a big part of that and this young queer woman would be part of that. And in order to make it complete, there also needed to be you know, someone who had come earlier in the 1880s and seen the way that tango was when it was completely underground and a, you know, a sex worker who, you know, was trafficked from Poland, mm-hmm. from Jewish communities that were really preyed upon. And that's, it was a very real part of the story of Buenos Aires a hundred years ago, um, as well as Afro-Argentinians whose, you know, story is so incredibly under told um, and so forth. So in order to do that, in order to kind of widen the sphere, I, I wanted to have this, uh, this this emergence of one other point of view per chapter. And I hoped it would work. You know, sometimes you, you do something like that in a novel and then towards the end, you know, your trusted readers go, I, I don't know if it's working or you yourself, I'm not sure if it's working and, and so forth. Uh, but this time, you know, it was able to to hold. You know, what's funny is, is you say, oh, one, one point of view per chapter. And, and in no way did, did my mind reflect that particular organization, oh, really? but, but it worked. And I think probably that underlying structure so that I'm, you know, even if I don't recognize it, I'm learning the rules of the book and they're kind of holding up as I go probably really helps. Right. Like subconsciously the reader holds that rhythm and therefore can hold it. So it's like there are nine chapters and in each chapter there is one foray into another point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, usually relatively brief and always in a moment when our protagonist is physically present. 
Mm-hmm. So, so that it, there's a glue there. I mean, I think novels can can have so many different kinds of structures, a dazzling array of structures, and and almost anything can work, and things can be very large as long as there's something that gives coherence, um, that sort of holds the center together, so that there can be spokes to the wheel that kind of face out in a lot of directions. If that makes sense, like what is the hub of the wheel that holds mm-hmm. all those spokes? And in this case, that hub was, you know. We always go in those forays when, in the same time and moment when a, when the protagonist is there. So she she continues to hold it together. That was my hope. Yeah, absolutely. And and you say you know there can be many different sort of correct forms for a novel. And I I know I actually my my friend Dorothy was saying to me, um, you know, remember you're not gonna you're not finding the right book. You're 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 sort of deciding. And I was saying something similar to one of my students last night. You're not looking for you know looking for it out there. You're you're making choices. Yes. Yes. Talk about how con- how consciously you made those choices, and also do you map things? Like how do you hold get that structure kind of in there sometimes i map things just to kind of keep things clear in my mind so i don't get sort of lost in the tangles of the book and and that's that's happening even more now with the the book i'm working on now because it it sort of it spans 150 years and it just feels really unwieldy in my head so i so i put it up on things if you have the luxury of using a wall which i didn't with my first novel but now that i have my own writing office i have this incredible you know luxury of a wall where i can put things up that are just you know reflections of my inner world and, and my work so um so that helps me keep track of things i don't outline and then stick to the outline as a writer it's more sort of it's the egg and then the chicken in the sense that I, it, it, it's, it's the creative process. And then I kind of take notes on what I, what I think is happening and put it on the wall mm-hmm. as opposed to um, outlining and then writing from it. But I find that, I find that helpful sometimes just for keeping. Yeah. We actually had a question about that, that I, let me just see what, what she's actually saying. Um, how do you organize all the different kinds of materials, visual, sensual, literary, historical, et cetera. Oh, in research. I guess so. Yeah. Well, first she said, how did you have the confidence to move from your activist work world with women to the literary world and writing? Where did you get the guidance? Did you have mentors? And then this organization question. So they they might just be different questions. Same person. Um, I I, I did not have the confidence. I was not (laughs) confident. (laughs) I was not confident at all. However, I was obsessed. I was really obsessed Mm -hmm. with the novel I was writing. And I had this, I couldn't possibly have taken the leap to go back to graduate school, get an MFA, um, or even put this novel out into the world if I had felt that it was about me, that about my voice and whether I deserved to be a writer, because the answer would have probably come back to me from my own mind in the negative. Um, You know, I I really did not have the confidence. I had gone um, to a very large university for undergrad where I applied twice to the creative writing uh, courses and didn't get in. It was very discouraging. And so I sort of, you know, went off and, you know, and, and I was I was basically moonlighting. I was working at a rape crisis center and then at night and on weekends locking myself up and working on my novel. So I didn't have confidence in myself, but I did have this obsession with the book. And I sort of had a belief in, if not my own writing abilities, I had a belief in what the book wanted to say. I had a I had a, a a really palpable sense that the stories I wanted to tell were important. That I was living in a country, the United States, that knew absolutely nothing about Uruguay in general, let alone the Uruguayan dictatorship, let alone how that affected women who were incarcerated as political prisoners. 
let alone the women who came before them and, and sort of, you know, contributed to making the country what it was and yet are invisible to formal histories. These were stories that I felt compelled to tell and I wasn't seeing them being told in the cultural culture around me. Mm -hmm. so, so that gave me the impetus to do it. Um, and if I can see it as a sort of, you know, and I, and I continue to see the creation of fiction as a service, as something that has deep cultural significance beyond ourselves. Mm. That's so important and so and so little said. I think uh, Stephanie Palmer thinks that too. Stephanie Palmer? Who is the person who wrote the Twilight series? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that took us all a second. I know. Well, it had an impact. That doesn't mean a novel should be polemical. I mean, I don't think novels have to have, I mean, I certainly do not think novels should be, you know, preachy in any way i mean we yeah, need to they, tell the story that wants to come through us and let it yeah. be complex and you know as edward p jones i'm a huge admirer of edward, edward p jones who wrote that novel the known world among other books and you know he says you know the, the novel should be like god to your characters you know how would god look on you know the the prisoner the murderer the saint everyone looks into all of their souls so you know it's not about um preachiness it is about simply giving voice and room and breath to stories, which um, is important. Well, I have, I have to say that, um, you know, when I was at Mills myself, my thesis was actually about uh, women who were in the First World War. Uh, there was the Scottish Women's Hospitals. And as I did research for that thesis, there was mm -hmm. so much information about uh, you know, how many people from what were then the colonies actually participated on European soil and what that was like and how those things impacted and the fact that the Scottish women's hospitals, there were actually like, I think, 12 of them, one of which was in Russia at the time of the revolution. And these are not things that you hear very often. So I'm very attracted to these kinds of stories about these people who are there and are participating and are absolutely part of what frames those worlds. And so I love that this is something that, you know, drives your work because it's exciting to me, which doesn't really matter to you, but. It <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, I mean, that's a great connection. I mean, there's just so much that's undertold and, and sometimes that's, of course, I mean, a, a seemingly quiet domestic, so-called domestic story, you know, about someone's inner life can also do a great deal to create room and voice and breath in society. So, it, you know, it doesn't have to be the epic historic scale if you know that these are things that I get drawn to um, for my own reasons. That's my writing path, but we need all kinds of books and voices. Mm -hmm. Do you tend to read the same kinds of books that you write or, or I mean, are those the books you're most drawn to read as well? I no, I read as widely as I possibly can. And I think when I'm working on a project, I, I, I try to work, read really widely mm -hmm. um, so that the influence can come from a range of places. Mm -hmm. But I will say, I think one of my, one of my kind of lighthouse beacon inspire um, role models is Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I just think that her contribution to literature, art and culture is monumental. Um, and when I look at the way she has dedicated her career to giving voice, giving voice back to silenced histories um, here in the United States, I think it's, it's an incredible contribution and, and it, you know, and I just think about how, how much more impoverished we would be as a society and as a world if we didn't have her books. Um, that helps me through any moments where I'm tempted to think that fiction is insignificant. 
right? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And imaginatively, how do you reach to, how do you, you know, how do you channel or how do you create these voices that are so underrepresented and that are historical? I mean, they're not, it's not just your own voice, right? It's something you have to reach across mm-hmm. all kinds of differences to, to generate. How, how, do you have any sort of tips for that or approaches? Well, I think that's one of the things I find so exhilarating about writing novels is that is getting to explore the inside of other people's consciousness. Um, so, you know, I, I think it begins with an imaginative leap. And then we draw on our own, you know, lived experience and our own soul, sometimes more than we are even conscious of in the writing. Um, and we see it later, you know, is that mm-hmm. I, I find that my own novels can be a very mysterious kind of mirror of, oh, wow, that, <laughs> that's an inner part of me that I didn't realize I had let out and, and given to that character until I now see it in print. Um, mm-hmm. And so, that, you know, that sort of thing can happen. But I think... Um, I think the key is just to get out of our own way mm-hmm. and and let and let the voices come. They they come to life if we continue to show up steadfastly to the page and to the writing. Can you talk a little bit about your sort of your schedule and anything any things you put into place to to kind of help yourself get out of your own way? Yeah. Um I think uh, steadfastly showing up is the biggest thing, and I, you know I've done this slightly differently at different times, depending on how much freedom I had, how much writing time I had, and what other forces were at work. But essentially, when I'm really actively writing, I create a s- spreadsheet and I log in. I log in every day to my work, and I create goals. Um, and it may be, for example, if I'm really generating a book, a thousand words a day. But usually, the goals are time-based. Mm-hmm. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna clock in 15 hours this week. I'm going to clock in six hours this week because I, you know, realistically looking ahead at this week, that's what I've got. But once I've committed to that time, it's got to go in the spreadsheet. I mean, I, I log each day, the date, how many hours I did or pages, if that's what I'm counting at the time. Um, and then I, you know, make a little note to myself of what I worked on, which is also becomes this really great reflection looking back, you know, over the last six months, oh, it seems so invisible, but look, I did all this work. Mm-hmm. And, and that means that, you know, I still get two hours of credit, even if I didn't generate words, because maybe I was doing a whole bunch of going back into research, or maybe I rewrote a paragraph and made it better, but it's now five words shorter than it was. So, you know, the time, the time yeah. thing is better. I use a timer, I put on the timer, and then I'm in the zone. If I want to peek online at my email or Facebook, that timer goes off. If I want to go pee, that timer has to go off because on the way to pee is your house. Distractions. Chair. It's going to be the long working chair. Um, (laughs) I also like the the time clock aspect of it. It's, it's, It's a kind of a feedback loop that lets you know that you're also taking yourself seriously. Yes. So for exactly. writers who have not actually maybe been published or are working on things that don't have a clear group of people waiting for it, this kind of clocking in, I think, is a good self-reinforcement. It's that, you know, that chain of X's that Jerry Seinfeld talks about, where it's like you're doing it, you're doing it, you're doing it, and it's its own feedback loop. Absolutely, exactly. It makes it visible and, and, and structured, just like, you know, if you had a job at 7-Eleven and you said you were going to show up at 6 o'clock and you don't show up, you get fired. So, yeah. you know, taking our work, our writing work as seriously as a job at 7-Eleven. 
you know, at least as seriously as that. And actually pulling <laughs> <something> up. <laughs> that is so fabulous. I love the spreadsheet. That's amazing. We have some um, things coming in. First of all, just so, so much excitement over here from our, our small invited list audience. Um, oh, uh, uh, Vijaya says how beautiful. So moving for me to hear uh, this personally and Ma Maureen says does Carolina have ESP feel like she's reading my adult mind on confidence not wanting it to be about my voice a part of the world that needs to be told what the book wants to say but the problem <laughs> uh, when you think you know what you want to say but then you aren't communicating that uh-huh uh-huh Yes, well, when that happens, then I think that's where the magic of revision comes in. Mm -hmm. That with an early draft, perhaps you have this vision, you have a vision, and it's so sparkling and glorious and urgent in your mind. And then you write a draft of a chapter, a story, a whole book, and, and then it, 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 it hasn't yet made its way there. And, uh, and then with, with, with supportive readers, whether that's mentors, teachers, peers, a writing group, you, you start to see where the gap is between what you want it to be or what you feel the book wants to be and what the book currently is on the page. Mm -hmm. And this is, a, this is a muscle that gets stronger with time. These are tools that one gets more skill with over time. I, promise that is true. I know that my interviewers both know this is absolutely true. But when people are starting out and working on their first novel or, you know, in the first five years of writing fiction, it's hard to believe that that is true. But it really does. Mm -hmm. You get that skill with with just lots and lots and lots of time and, and working on it. But there's so there's the magic of revision is where we do that, where we close the gap between where the book is on the page and, and what it really wants to be. Yeah. And there's so like trusting yourself there just very quickly that, that you will, yeah. you are capable of doing the revision the book needs to do. Oh, completely. Yeah. It's so trusting, yourself, of trusting yourself. Yes. It's a huge piece of trusting yourself. And I think because we have this idea, I mean, also so many of us now write on computers directly. And so the, the, the words look so clean on the screen and they're so easily printable that we have this illusion that somehow, you know, our text should be really polished from the beginning. And if it isn't, there's somehow something wrong with us. When in fact, every printed book on your shelf that was published by a traditional publisher has been through more or less a dozen aching, painstaking revisions. Do you write by hand ever? I free write by hand when I'm trying to get ideas um, and when I want to make things portable um, for generating ideas. And I wrote a lot more first, uh, uh, in my first novel. Um, longhand. And with each novel, it's become steadily more electronic over the last 15 years, which is interesting. Right, right. Uh, and Walker says, going to the characters, do you meet real characters and do some studies to go deeper? Yeah, whenever possible. And absolutely, certainly. And even though I write things um, set in other historical times, you can certainly, you know, draw on people. I mean, for example, in researching the Dango, I talked to anyone who would speak to me about what they personally loved about the Dango, Dango dancers, Dango musicians and performers, um, you know, many, many, many Rio Platense friends, um, you know, for whom it's part of it's part of our culture. So even those of us who don't play the music or dance the music, it's 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 part of us. So um, on on all of those levels, um, Absolutely. And, and not just that, but, you know, things that you might not you might not expect to be points of connection. There's just something about someone's personality that you can secretly slip in to an immigrant matron in Buenos Aires. And really, no one will ever know that that's actually 
you know, <laughs> your ex-lover. Yes. <laughs> you know, one of the things I just wanted Unless to mention. Unless you tell them on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. Then, then you, yes. <laughs> Are you paying attention? Um, so, yeah, I loved the nuanced way that her sexuality evolves and that it's, that it's both um, something she's drawing out of herself and something that she's drawing out of her situation, her really unexpected situation. And I just thought that was really amazing and something I haven't seen done well much. <laughs> wow, yeah. thank you for saying that. Um, so, should we do our... Final. Is there any uh, anything else you want to say in, in terms of uh, advice to to writers or um, you know anything else you want to say about the about the book before we go do our final segment? I just thank you so much for having me for this incredibly um, rich. I just like really, this has been such a rich conversation, and it's really a, a gift and uh, un lujo. We say in Rio Platense Spanish, uh, in our very quirky Spanish, we say un lujo, like a real just luxury treat. It means mm -hmm. both words in one. Um, to to get to have less of an interview and more of a conversation with two other such smart um, and thoughtful writers so thank you so much and also with the people who who brought their wonderful questions oh well it's super thrilling for us as well um so um let's see and do you want to explain yes. <laughs> is now time for steal this uh, so this segment is based on the premise of T.S. Eliot's that amateur poets borrow and professional poets steal so what have you come across in your reading or wandering or anything else that uh, you've wanted to take and make your own? And Elizabeth will model it for you and give you a moment, Carolina, to as will Angie. Um, <laughs> so um, I actually checked a um, an audiobook out of the library, the the Bird Just Boys by Elizabeth Strout, and um, and so I'm listening to it, which is which is interesting. Um, I've done I've done that a little bit, but I'm I mostly listen to podcasts. But anyway, I'm listening to this, and she's so masterful at each. I mean, at many things, but each character has her own clear agenda coming into the scene, which I think is very true to life. But often, when I you know I think when we know a scene, I know I do this, and I see other people. Is we know what the scene is about. The characters almost show up like to, to deal with the, their part of the scene and as if that's all that's going on. But she's like got these people coming fully, you know, fully engaged with whatever's going on in their own little conflicts and how those come in to the conversation and ping off in different directions and impact their body language and what they have to say and what they're thinking. And it's just, it's so fabulous. It really reminds me of how dimensional uh, something can be. So I would like to, um, to, to steal that. <laughs> <laughs> that's great um that's wonderful and angie do you want to go next well i actually am gonna steal carolina's excel sheet that's what i'm stealing today so thank you for sharing that um i think that's uh for someone who is hugely disorganized like myself it's very easy to not actually know how much time i have or commit to the time so i think that'll be a good tool for me to check out Fantastic. And give you some credit for the time, too. Yes. And Carolina, how about you? Anything you want to 
Oh, so much I want to feel. But one thing I'll say is the book I'm reading right now that's sort of in my backpack is um, the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas by Mm -hmm. Gertrude Stein. And it chronicles, you know, 30 years of Gertrude Stein's life in Paris with, you know, her buddy Pablo Picasso. And, you know, when she first met this no-name impoverished painter called Matisse, you know, and how how it all happened that this art movement was happening um, in the early 20s. 20th century in Paris and also how a woman kind of created this incredibly creative life for herself and the writing is beautiful um, but as I read it it gets me really excited about art and about people making lives that revolve around art and um, it's it's very exciting and it it, it 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 has me thinking about sort of structurally how to create uh, an, a fictional world in which people have relationships not only with each other, but with art and art making and um, how she makes that magic of kind of making that excitement infectious. So I'm hoping to feel that. Excellent. Fantastic. And will you forgive Gertrude her negative comments about Oakland? <laughs> I will forgive her because I think truly, deeply, that if Gertrude Stein came back to my adopted hometown, Oakland, in 2015, she would say, there is hella there there. Yes. (laughs) That is awesome. Um, So, Carolina, will you tell people how they can um, get in touch with you? And, and of course, they can find your book at the storymakersshow.com website, but also can you tell us uh, your websites and, and all of that? Yes, absolutely. My, um, I have a Facebook author page at facebook.com slash Carolina de Robertis. I'd love it if you joined me. And I also have a website that is my name, www.carolinaderobertis.com. And, and the book, the new book is The Gods of Tango. It's gorgeous and just thrilling. I mean, I just, I just loved yeah. it. And I recommend it to a friend who's now reading it with her book club. And it's just, it's, oh, wonderful. it's just one of those books that you just, all you want to do is read. You know, I, I couldn't get Angie to even like binge watch anything with me while she was reading it and like, <laughs> vice versa. And we were sharing a copy. So it was like, there was a stretch of time where we were. Uh, I trumped Hulu or Netflix even for a second in one yes, person's that is a triumph in the 21st century. <laughs> <laughs>